Section 19 of Thrift. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Thrift by Samuel Smiles. The Crosleys, Masters and Men, continued Part 2. One of the most promising of cooperative undertakings established by employers for the benefit of their workpeople was that of the Messrs. Briggs and Son of Whitwood Collieries near Wakefield. The Collieries were converted into a limited company in 1865. The working Colliers were made partners in the prosperity of the concern to this extent that whenever the divisible profits accruing from the business in any year after making allowance for depreciation, exceeded ten per cent on the capital embarked, all of those employed in the company were to receive one-half of such excess profit as a bonus to be distributed amongst them in proportion to their respective earnings during the year. The object of the owners was to put an end to strikes, which had sometimes placed them in peril of their lives and also to enable them to live on better terms with their workpeople. The colliers were invited to become shareholders, and thus to take a personal interest in the prosperity of the concern. The project was received with great favor by the Friends of Cooperation. Mr. John Stuart Mill, in his Principles of Political Economy, announced that the Messrs. Briggs had taken the first step, and that it was highly honorable on the part of those employers of labor to have initiated a system so full of benefit both to the operatives employed and to the general interests of social improvement mr hughes m p after visiting the collieries expressed his surprise at the great success achieved in the first year of working the collieries as a partnership of industry i believe he said to the owners that in taking this step you have done a great work for england and one which will be gratefully recognized before long by the country the promoters also claimed a reward from the paris universal exhibition for having been the first large employers in england who have allowed all their workpeople whether co-shareholders with them or not to participate in all divisible profits beyond a fixed percentage on the paid-up capital of the company only a few years have passed and already this promising partnership of industry has come to an end it has not been brought to an end by the masters but by the men the masters were satisfied with the profits made during the recent high prices of coal but the men were not satisfied with the wages had they been as free as the welsh colliers they would have insisted on being paid as highly but it would have been as it was in wales ruinous to the masters the system of industrial partnership had at length to be abandoned and the men now work for wages instead of part profits the truth is the colliers were not sufficiently educated to appreciate the advantages of the industrial scheme though some of the whitwood workmen have been stimulated by thrift to build and furnish houses of their own the greater number of them during the recent flush of prosperity 
squandered their wages on frivolity, extravagance, and intemperance. The attempt was also made by several firms engaged in the iron trade to embody the principle of cooperation in their respective concerns. Amongst these were the firms of Greening and Company, Manchester and Fox, Head and Company, Middlesbrough. The experiments were to a certain extent brought to an end by the greed or laziness of the colliers, who have for a time destroyed the prosperity of the iron trade. Messrs. Greening and Company started with great enthusiasm, and the results were very successful as regards the work people. Nothing could have been better than the spirit of goodwill and even devotion which was displayed by many of them. But, unhappily, contracts were taken by the management which resulted in a series of losses, and the scheme ended in liquidation. Mr. Greening states that the distribution societies have as yet been much more successful than the production societies, but he hopes to see the latter crown the edifice by making workers everywhere no longer servants, but co-partners with capital. The firm of Fox, Head, and Company also admitted their workmen to a partnership of profits. They had for some time been much annoyed by strikes. Their works had stood idle for about a fourth of the whole time that had elapsed since their commencement. The system of cooperation was adopted in 1866, at the close of a long strike. One of the conditions of the scheme was that Fox, Head, and Company should not be members of any association of employers, and that the workmen should not be members of any trade union. The original intention was to pay the workmen a bonus according to profits. They eventually adopted the practice of the Messrs. Briggs and Company, which was to divide the profits over ten per cent into two parts, the one to belong to the capitalists as their profit, and the other to be divided amongst all those who had received wages or salaries during the year in proportion to the amount received by them. An opportunity was also afforded to the workmen of depositing their savings with the firm. But as there was only one instance during three years of a workman applying to invest his savings, the clause was withdrawn. In consequence of the depressed state of the iron trade, there were no profits to be divided during the first two years. The men were, however, paid the current rate of wages, and were saved the expenses of union levies. The cooperative store, which had been founded by the workmen, was in a very prosperous condition. In the third year of the cooperative scheme, a bonus of two and a half percent was divided between the employers and the employed. The workmen also received an advance of five percent in wages. In the fourth year, the wages of the workmen were further increased ten percent, and this took the cream off the bowl. However, a bonus of four percent was paid on the wages and salaries received by the employees during that year. At the meeting held to communicate the result of the year's business, Mr. Head said, quote, There may be some who think the tendency of our policy has been too sentimental. I don't believe in doing business on sentimental principles. But I contend that mere money-making is not the sole end of existence. 
we have been associated with many of you for several years and we cannot help feeling a considerable interest in you after all life is not so very long another twenty or thirty years will see us all underground and there will be other employers and other workmen carrying on business at newport rolling mills it would indeed be strange if we did not take some interest in those with whom we are so much associated and so without in the least relaxing discipline or sacrificing any true principle of business we hold it to be our duty as employers as well as your duties as employees to consider each other's interests and to do all that each of us can in the way of true and hearty cooperation. The coal famine began to tell upon the iron workers. The furnaces were often laid off for want of coal. The principal causes of the bad supply of coal arose from shorter hours of labor and higher wages for less work. Yet a bonus of three and a quarter percent was allowed on the wages and salaries received by the employees during the year 1871. The cooperative stores continued to be very productive, and many of the members saved considerable sums of money. In the next year, a bonus of three and a half percent was divided. But difficulties were in store. The coal famine continued. The employers of labor held meetings to resist the successive advances of wages and to counteract the operations of the trades unions. Mr. Head strongly urged the men to hold together. Cease to be deluded, he said, by those trade unions. Save all you can, and with your savings provide against the day of sickness, a day which is sure to come sooner or later. Provide for old age. Read good books. You have every chance now with a free library in the town. Give credit to others for wishing to be straightforward and honest as well as yourselves, and in every way I would ask you to act reasonable, straightforward, sensible English workmen ought to do. Show that you can appreciate being well used, that you can appreciate those who put themselves to trouble that they may do you good, and beware lest, by one of sympathy, you drive the best of the employers out of the business, and retain those alone who are despotic and tyrannical. Cease to follow those who are actuated by self-interest or by blind impulse, who do not care a bit if they get you into trouble, provided only they serve their own selfish ends. Such men are but blind leaders of the blind, and if you follow them, you will eventually find yourselves deserted and lying hopelessly and helplessly in the last ditch. It was of no use. The men's wages went up twenty per cent, and there was an end of the bonuses. The coal famine continued. The masters, instead of making profits, made immense losses. The price of iron went down, the mills stood idle for two months. The result was that when the masters next met the workmen in public meeting, Mr. Waterhouse, the auditor, reported that, while the gross earnings of the year have exceeded the expenditures on materials, wages, and trade charges, they have been insufficient to cover the full amounts to be provided under the cooperative scheme 
for interest on capital depreciation and the reserve for bad debts and that consequently it was his duty to declare that no amount was at present payable as bonus either to employers or employed no further report was issued in eighteen seventy five excepting an announcement that there was no dividend and that the firm did not intend to continue the cooperative scheme any longer during the time that it lasted the employees had received about eight thousand pounds in bonuses since then sir joseph whitworth has announced his intention of giving his workmen a bonus upon his profits but the principle of the division has not yet been announced on hearing of his intention mr carlyle wrote the following letter to sir joseph start of letter would to heaven that all the captains of industry in england had a soul in them such as yours the look of england is to me at this moment abundantly ominous the question of capital and labour growing ever more anarchic insoluble altogether by the notion hitherto applied to it pretty sure to issue in petroleum one day unless some other gospel than that of the dismal science come to illuminate it two things are pretty sure to me the first is that capital and labor never can or will agree together till they both first of all decide on doing their work faithfully throughout and like men of conscience and honor whose highest aim is to behave like faithful citizens of this universe and obey the eternal commandments of almighty god who made them the second thing is that a sadder object even than that of the coal strike or any other conceivable strike is the fact that loosely speaking we may say all england has decided that the profitablest way is to do its work ill slurrily swiftly and mendaciously what a contrast between now and say only a hundred years ago at the latter date all england awoke to its work to an invocation to the eternal maker to bless them in their day's labor and help them to do it well now all england shopkeepers workmen all manner of competing laborers awaken as with an unspoken and heartfelt prayer to beelzebub oh help me thou great lord of shoddy adulteration and malfeasance to do our work with a maximum slurriness swiftness profit and mendacity for the devil's sake amen end of letter fortunately there is not a great deal of truth in this letter nor in the heartfelt prayer to shoddy the right honourable mr forster ought to know something of labour and capital and at a recent meeting of the cobden club he stated that they were often told that they had a war within their borders between labour and capital but as an employer of labour ever since he came to manhood he would only say that he never knew a time in which employer and employed were on better terms the late sir francis crosley observed that there was a good deal of unreasonable feeling abroad it was held by some that it was wrong for working men to sell their labor at the best price but it must be remembered 
that their labor was the only thing they had to sell and the best thing to do was to leave these matters to take their natural course it was a great mistake on the part of the employers to suppose that the lowest paid labor was always the cheapest if there was not so much desire to run down the price of labor and the masters showed a more conciliatory spirit there would be fewer strikes and outrages what a contrast between now and say only a hundred years ago certainly there is a very great contrast england was not a manufacturing country a hundred years ago we imported nearly everything except corn wool and flax we imported the greatest part of our iron from spain sweden germany and russia we imported our pottery from holland our hats from flanders our silk from france our cloth and carpets from belgium our cotton manufacturers our woolen and flax manufacturers our machine manufacturers could scarcely be said to exist coal could scarcely be had for the coal pits could not be kept clear of water a hundred years ago we could not build a steam engine we could scarcely build a bridge look at the churches built a hundred years ago and behold the condition of our architecture a hundred years ago we had fallen to almost the lowest condition as a nation we had not a harbor we had not a dock the most extensive system of robbery prevailed on the river thames the roads such as they were swarmed with highwaymen and blackmail was levied by the highlanders upon the lowland farmers down to the middle of last century a hundred years ago our ships were rotten they were manned by prisoners taken from the hulks or by workingmen pressed in the streets in open day when james watt was learning his trade of an instrument maker in london a hundred years ago he durst scarcely walk abroad lest he should be seized and sent to india or the american plantations less than a hundred years ago the colliers and salters of scotland were slaves it is not forty years since women and children worked in coal pits surely we are not to go down upon our knees and pray for restoration of the horrible things that existed a hundred years ago a hundred years ago ireland was treated like a conquered country and hangings and shootings of rebels were frequent the fleet at the nore mutinied and the mutiny was put down by bloodshed and executions towns and cities swarmed with ruffians and brutal sports brutal language existed to a frightful degree criminals were hanged five or six together at tyburn gibbets existed at all the cross-roads throughout the country the people were grossly ignorant and altogether neglected scepticism and irreligion prevailed until wesley and whitfield sprang up to protest against formalism and atheism they were pelted with rotten eggs sticks and stones a methodist preacher was whipped out of gloucester a hundred years ago literature was at a very low ebb the press was in a miserable state william whitehead was poet laureate who knows of him now gibbon had not written his decline and fall junius was the popular writer political corruption was scarified in his letters 
the upper classes were coarse drunken and ill-mannered bribery and corruption of the grossest scale were the principal means for getting into parliament mr dowdeswell m p for worcestershire said to the commons quote, you have turned out a member for impiety and obscenity what half a dozen members of this house ever met over a convivial bottle that their discourse is entirely free from obscenity impiety or abuse of government though drunkenness is bad enough now it was infinitely worse a hundred years ago the publican signboards announced you may here get drunk for a penny dead drunk for tuppence and have clean straw for nothing drunkenness was considered a manly vice to drink deep was the fashion of the day six bottle men were common even drunken clergymen were not unknown what were the popular amusements of the people a hundred years ago they consisted principally of man-fighting dog-fighting cock-fighting bull-baiting badger-drawing the pillory public whipping and public executions mr wyndham vindicated the ruffianism of the ring in his place in parliament and held it up as a school in which englishmen learnt pluck and the manly art of self-defence bull-baiting was perhaps more brutal than prize-fighting though wyndham defended it as calculated to stimulate the noble courage of englishmen the bull was secured to a stake in the market-place or the bull-ring the name still survives in many towns and there the animal was baited by the rabble-dogs of the neighbourhood can one scarcely imagine the savageness of the sport the animal mutilations the imprecations of ruffians worse than brutes the ferociousness and drunkenness the blasphemy and unspeakable horrors of the exhibition the public mind of this day absolutely revolts at such brutality yet less than a hundred years ago on the twenty fourth of may eighteen o two a bill for the abolition of bull-baiting was lost in the house of commons by sixty-four to fifty-one mr wyndham contending that horse-raising and hunting were more cruel than bull-baiting or prize-fighting the pillory was one of our time-honoured institutions fifty years ago and men and women used to be placed there for offences such as a wise legislature would have endeavoured to conceal from public consideration the horrid scenes which then took place when men women and children collected in crowds to pelt the offenders with missiles were so disgusting that they cannot be described not more seemly were the public whippings than administered to women in common with the coarsest male offenders the public abominations and obscenities of the good old times would almost have disgraced the days of nero but bull-baiting cock-fighting and other ferocious amusements have now departed even the village stocks have rotted out drunkenness has become disreputable the good old times have departed we hope never to return the laborer now has other resources besides the public-house there are exhibitions and people's parks steamboats and railways reading-rooms and coffee-rooms museums gardens and cheap concerts 
in place of the disgusting old amusements there has come a healthier sounder life greater enlightenment more general sobriety and a humaner spirit we have in a hundred years outgrown many of our savage tendencies we are not less brave as a people though less brutal we are quite as manly though much less gross manners are more refined yet as a people we have not lost our pluck energy and endurance we respect ourselves more and as a nation we have become more respected we now think with shame of the manners of a hundred years ago the achievements of which england has most reason to be proud have been accomplished during the last hundred years english slaves have become emancipated both at home and abroad impressment has been done away with parliamentary representation has been conferred upon all classes of the people the corn laws have been abolished free trade has been established our ports are now open to the whole world and then see what our inventors have accomplished james watt invented the steam engine which in a few years created a large number of new industries and gave employment to immense numbers of people henry court invented the puddling process and enabled england to rely upon its own stores of iron instead of depending upon foreign and perhaps hostile countries all the docks and harbors round the english coast have been formed during the present century the steamboat the railway and the telegraph have only been invented and applied during the last fifty years with respect to the charge made against the english workman as to the slurriness swiftness and mendacity of his work it is simply impossible that this should be so our ports are free and open to the world and if frenchmen germans belgians or americans could execute better work than englishmen we should not only cease to export but also lose our home trade the foreigner is now free to undersell us if he can in our own markets it was in the perfect confidence that englishmen were the best and most honest workers in the world that free trade was established should we ever become a shoddy manufacturing people free trade will probably be abolished and we shall then impose prohibitory duties upon foreign manufacturers but is it not the fact that every year sees an increase in the exports of british goods that english workmanship is not considered the worst but the best in the general markets of the world and what numerous foreign makers place an english mark upon their productions in order to ensure their sale it is by means of english workmen and english tools and machines that continental manufactories themselves have been established and yet notwithstanding their cheaper labor we should command the foreign market but for the prohibitory duties which foreigners impose upon english manufactures mr brassey in his book on work and wages says it may be affirmed that as practical mechanics the english are unsurpassed 
the presence of the English engineer, the solitary representative among a crew of foreigners of the mechanical genius of his country, is a familiar recollection to all who have travelled much in the steamers of the Mediterranean. Consul Lever says that in the vast establishment of the Austrian Lloyds at Trieste, a number of English mechanical engineers are employed not only in the workshops but as navigating engineers in the company's fleet although there is no difficulty in substituting for these men germans or swiss at lower rates of payment the uniform accuracy of the english their intelligence their consummate mastery of all the details of their art and their resources in every case of difficulty have entirely established their superiority the English are also the best miners, the best tool-makers, the best instrument-makers, the best navies, the best shipbuilders, the best spinners and weavers. Mr. Brassey says that during the construction of the Paris and Rouen railway, the Frenchmen, Irishmen, and Englishmen were employed side by side. In the same quarry at Borniers, the Frenchmen received three francs, the Irishman four, and the Englishman six, and the last was found to be the most advantageous workman of the three. The superiority of the British workmen overseas of other nations was equally remarkable whenever there was an opportunity of employing him side by side with them. There is no doubt about the swiftness of English workmanship but this is one of the merits of english mechanism monsieur jules simon observes that heretofore the manual laborer has been an intelligent force but by means of machinery he is converted into an intelligent director of force it is by the speed of the english machinery and the intelligent quickness of the workman that his master makes a profit and himself such high wages as compared with continental workmen in france one person is employed to mine fourteen spindles in russia about one to twenty-eight in prussia one to thirty-seven and in great britain one to seventy-four spindles it is by means of the swiftness of our machinery that we are enabled to bring cotton from india manufacture it in manchester return the manufactured article to the place from which it was taken and sell it at a lower price than that native made calico mr chadwick mentions the following case Quote, a lady the wife of an eminent cotton manufacturer went to him one day rejoicing with a fine piece of muslin as the produce of india which she had bought in london and showing it to him said if he produced a fabric like that he would really be doing something meritorious in textile art he examined it and found that it was the produce of his own looms near manchester made for the indian market exclusively bought there and resold in england as a rare indian manufacture an annual report is furnished to the government by our foreign consul with reference to the character and condition of the working classes in most parts of the civilized world 
Mr. Walter, M.P., in a recent address to an assembly of workmen, referred to one of these reports. He said, There is one remark in particular that occurs with lamentable frequency throughout the report, that, with few exceptions, the foreign workman does not appear to take pride in his work, nor, to use a significant expression, to put his character into it. A remarkable instance of this is mentioned of a country which generally constitutes an honorable exception to this unhappy rule. Switzerland is a country famous for its education and its watches, yet the following passage from the report will show that neither knowledge nor skill will suffice without the exercise of that higher quality on which I have been dwelling. As a rule, it says, Swiss workmen are competent in their several trades and take an interest in their work, for, thanks to their superior education, they fully appreciate the pecuniary advantages to their masters and indirectly to themselves of adhering strictly to this course. A striking instance of the impolicy of acting otherwise has lately happened at St. Emir in the Bernese Jura, and produce a deep impression. In this district, for some years past, a great falling off in the quality of the watches manufactured has taken place, owing to the inhabitants finding it much more profitable to increase the production at the cost of the workmanship than to abide by the old rules of the trade. They prosper beyond all expectation for a considerable time, but finally their watches got such a bad name that they became unsaleable, and the result is a general bankruptcy of nearly all the watchmakers of this particular district. One thing, however, remains to be said of foreign workmen generally. Although they do not work so hard as the English, they take much better care of their earnings. They are exceedingly frugal and economical. Frenchmen are much soberer than Englishmen, and much better mannered. They are, on the whole, greatly more provident than the English workmen. Mr. Brassey states that when the Paris and Rouen railway works were commenced, the contractors endeavored to produce a system by which the workmen were to be paid once a fortnight. But very soon after the operations had begun, the Frenchman requested that the pay might take place only once a month. Mr. Reed, managing director of the line, told the House of Commons Committee on Railway Laborers that a French laborer is a much more independent person than an Englishman, and much more respectable. He stated, in support of his opinion, this remarkable circumstance that whereas a French laborer desired to be paid only once a month, the English laborer desired to be paid every Saturday night, and by the following Wednesday he wanted something on account of the week's work. Nothing could be a greater test, said Mr. Reed, of the respectability of a working man than being able to go without his pay for a month. Although the French workman has nothing like the same facilities for saving as the English, the Journal des Debats alleges that he saves ten times as much as his rival. There are only about a thousand savings banks and branches established in France, and yet 
two millions of persons belonging to the lower ranks last year invested in them about twenty-eight millions sterling but the frenchman of the city prefers investing in government rentes and the frenchman of the country prefers investing in land all however are thrifty saving and frugal because they are educated in economy from their earliest years End of section 19